Welcome to an audio stream from San Marino Community Church, featuring our own pastoral staff and various guest speakers. God, we pray that today we might listen, that all of our fears and concerns and memories and worries we might put aside and listen, that we might hear your voice in the beautiful lyrics of a song and the voices that completely transport us into your presence that we might hear your very nature in scripture and that our hearts might listen for the word that you have for each of us. We pray these things in the name of Christ, amen. A while back, the PCSA Pension Board noticed that clergy didn't take care of themselves, that they stayed up too late, that they were available too much, that they didn't exercise and they didn't eat well and all sorts of stuff. So they uh, decided that perhaps they could create something that would help clergy. And so they created this call to health program. Now, just like any call to health program, clergy are no different than anybody else. You know, it takes a lot to get clergy up out of the chair and uh, to incentivize them to do something to take care of themselves. So what could incentivize somebody to take care of themselves when nothing else would work? Well, if it was something that benefited the whole family, perhaps, or if it was something that benefited the checkbook. And so if you accomplished a certain set of uh, goals for preventative care, like you went to see your doctor, you got into an exercise program, you did all these things and you earned a thousand points, you'd get a 15% reduction on your insurance. That's a pretty good incentive. And if you go online and you're supposed to post all of these things that you've done, you just, it would be very funny to you to see how many people do 100 points the whole year and then about 900 points the last 24 hours before it was before the time was up and unfortunately they post everything so everybody can see so it's kind of funny but but they did it in many ways Matthew's depiction of the last judgment is like a wellness check now that may be surprising to you but hang on let let me try to to unpack this a little bit. The purpose of this particular passage, believe it or not, is not to condemn or to scare, but to provide a snapshot of our overall health and development, learning and growth. And we can only hope that each of us here would do better than clergy overall and not save our whole lives to the very last minute so that we are in those thousand points. Because then we wouldn't get to participate in the joy of good health and what it means to be able to actually climb stairs and um, enjoy and participate to the fullest. And, and the purpose of this is that 
by involving ourselves in these things, that that should lead to new habits and new ways of life. After all, I think that if our doctors want us to flourish, of course our creator, our redeemer, our judge and king would want us to flourish. So with that in mind, let's go to the scripture today, Matthew 25, 31 through 46. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep at his right hand and the goats at the left. Then the king will say to those at his right hand, Come, you that are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundations of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you gave me clothing. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, and gave you food, or thirsty, and gave you something to drink? And when was it that we saw you, a stranger, and welcomed you? Or naked and gave you clothing? And when was it that we saw you sick or in prison and visited you? And the king will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these who are members of my family, you did it to me. Then he will say to those at his left hand, You that are accursed, Depart from me into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and the angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not give me clothing. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, Lord, when was it that we saw you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison? and did not take care of you. Then he will answer them, Truly I tell you, just as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The word of the Lord. I think it's very easy to read this passage and miss the gospel, to be honest with you. Where is the good news, after all, in this? Well, the good news for almost everyone is that everyone always sees themselves as the sheep. And they can look at them, whoever them is, and see them as the goats. And we can shake our heads and say, poor them, poor them, they're goats. That might be the good news. The story of the sheep and the goats is, of course, about us. But it's not faithfully told. I don't believe it is. In order to incite fear. It's not meant to do that. Whether or not Jesus' image of the king casting those that is left into eternal fire is hyperbole or a way of saying to hell with them, it's a frightful image. Simple fear, though, we know, doesn't move people into a life of vibrant discipleship. It doesn't make people fully alive and fully engaged. And 
So to make the image of the center of the passage, to make that image of the eternal fire as the center of the passage is a mistake in looking at this passage. If you look at the parable that came just before this one, that parable was the parable of the talents. And the very, the very heart of that parable is that operating out of fear is not the key way to live in response to God's provision. We saw that when the others took risks and invested money and the, other, and the third one who could only think of his own fear and not the good of the master who buried those talents was the one that was, had found the least favor with the master. And I tell you this, if Jesus was about anything, it was about motion, movement, moving us into a different reality called the kingdom. And the spirit of God who is constantly moving, constantly shaping, constantly encouraging and inviting and invoking. Fear, though, we know is used nonetheless by those who would try to dominate the world. We see leaders who use it for political advantage. We see businesses that use it for private profit. We saw groups of all kinds use it to advance their agenda. You know, I started thinking the other day, because I'm a child of uh, the advent of television. You know, I was born in 1955. Don't count the years. But in 1955 is when the television kind of rolled out into the living room and all of that. So I grew up fearful that if I didn't use the right toothpaste, my people wouldn't like me. Or if I didn't use the right deodorant, people wouldn't like me. And the basic fear that advertising casts on us is if we don't participate in all the things they tell us to, that people won't like us. And they won't, that we won't be loved. <clears throat> so when we read this passage with faith rather than fear, the the passage actually moves the reader into a space of holy assurance that empowers action more fitting to the kingdom than being afraid. When it's read with trust in a faithful God, the focus shifts from a prospect of damnation to the possibility of participation. It's a very participatory gospel invitation. In the coming kingdom that has come near and is at hand, that's what Jesus said. What you do for and to the least of these, sick, hungry, homeless, oppressed, imprisoned, you do to me, said Jesus. And I love that part where he says in the very, in the very first uh, of these where he says, when you did, these are my family. All of these are my family. It makes me feel so wonderful. I'm a part of Jesus' family. The one Jesus claims his family, and my brothers and sisters come in different shapes and sizes. Some have no money, some have all the money in the world, some are dressed well, some are not dressed so great. I'm in the middle in there someplace around, but we're family, and that's so powerful. In these familiar words of Jesus, I think there are three profoundly important ideas, and that's what I want you to take away with you today. The first is a statement about God. The God of Jesus, the God of the Bible, 
Jesus is saying God is not a remote supreme being on a throne up there above the clouds or somewhere out there in the mysterious reaches of the universe. Jesus says God is here, right here. That, that God is in the messiness and the ambiguity of human life and human interaction and the way we all struggle to be human. That God is here, particularly in your neighbor, the one who needs you. That's what a neighbor is, the one who needs you. Some people think of this as, who is my neighbor? Is it the one who lives next to me? Or is it the one who believes the same way I do? No. A neighbor is the one who needs you, whoever it is in the world. So you want to see the face of God. You look into the face of the least of these, is what Jesus says. The vulnerable, the sick, the children, the outcasts. If you want to run into God, that's who you look at, look for. The second radical statement is about the practice of religion. You can't read the paper, I think, these days without being concerned about the role that religion plays in the world today, all kinds of religions. Terrible atrocities are committed by people shouting, God is great. People picket and, and write hateful things on their signs in the name of God. Religious officials hide clergy abuse. They condemn each other. They invest in inordinate, inordinate amounts of energy and resources fighting one another over who gets in and who gets out. So much fighting over who are the sheep and who are the goats. Over whose doctrinal formulas are true and whose are false. And it's so interesting as we're studying the Reformation this, this whole past semester, and we'll continue to do so in the coming year. But we study the Reformation, and one thing becomes very clear. They may have wanted to be reformed, but they didn't like having different ideas between each other, and they went so far as to burn people at the stake, if you can believe that, not for being, uh, being non-believers, but for being believers, but not believing the way they believe. Burn people at the stake for dissenting voices. So much passion. And the interesting thing is that it's so much passion over a laundry list of issues about which Jesus had absolutely nothing to say. He did, however, say this. When you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Students of the New Testament know that the only description of the Last Judgment is from Matthew 25, this particular scripture. And I want you to notice something about this scripture. There is nothing in it about ecclesiastical connections or religious practices, not a thing. There is not one word in this passage about theology, creeds, or orthodoxies. There is only one criteria in this particular passage, and that is whether or not you saw Jesus Christ in the face of the needy, and whether or not you gave yourself away in love in his name. The third most important thing about this subject, however, is not social or political or economic or religious. It's very personal. 
God wants not only a new world modeled on the values of Jesus, God wants us, each of us. God is not a social engineer. We can't whittle God down to that simplicity. But a God of love who wants to redeem us and enjoy us and give us the gift of life, true, deep, authentic human life of living our fullest as a human being. God wants to save us by touching our hearts with love. God wants to save us by persuading us to care for each other, for caring for other human beings who need us. God wants to save us from obsessing about ourselves, our own needs. Sometimes in uh, counseling, you'll hear people talk about this. When you're the, when you feel the most down about yourself, when you feel the least like you're filled up, like you have any emotional energy whatsoever, the very, very best thing you can do is to go out and give yourself away. To go out and provide for another person, and all of a sudden, you have more energy. Your mind has, has been taken off digging this deep, deep well, and you're able to see life again. Your face has been down for so long, and then you lift it up, and you, it's like a frog looking up in, in the well and thinking that that's the whole world at what they see. Imagine that. God created the world out of, out of an abundance of love. That's, God loved so much that God created the world like a, like a bubbling fountain, and God is love and overflows with love. And in creation, God gives something of God's self. And in sending Jesus and the Holy Spirit, God repeatedly and generously pours out love on all people, showing us God's own self as well as who we are. We are people that God's love has poured out on, just dripping <laughs> in the Psalms. It's a, it's a beautiful image. It talks about... Um, of course, I can't remember which song, but I think it's maybe 151. Don't look it up. It won't be the one. Um, but it's the one where uh, uh, how good it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And that song, it talks about like oil uh, on Aaron's head dripping down into his beard and then onto his cloak and garment and out the side. It's this incredible picture of abundance and overflowing of love and goodwill and unity. God created us in the image of this, us in this image of this freely giving God. We freely share because that's what it means to be created in God's image, that we share freely, that we're abundant in it. It just drips off of us. In particularly, we love those conventionally considered unable to give back. That's where it really gets deep. Is It's so easy to give when somebody gives back. It's so easy to love when they love back. It's so easy to measure for measure. 
But when we give only because we have this great joy in giving, with no thought of return, that's, that's when we find the greatest freedom. We don't do so to earn God's love or anyone else's love or to curry favor or to make sure we're considered religious at the time to ensure that we're the, the sheep and not the goats. We give as an expression of the love that is inside of us. We give because we can't help it. We have to give. It's like the whole world being your grandchildren. I only say that because I was just with my grandchildren for the whole week. And there is nothing I just wouldn't give to them. I mean, and they ask for everything. So, I mean, and I don't mean just stuff. I mean, of you, you know. Watch me again. Read it to me again. See me, play with me, hold me, feed me. I mean, it just, and it's just a joy just to do it and give it and give it and give it. Imagine if everybody was, if we felt that way about every single person. It's so wonderful to think of it that way. God is looking for a natural overflowing of love. Because quite honestly, that is the kind of love Jesus came to demonstrate to us. This natural overflowing, the kind of love where Jesus could hang on a cross and look out at the persons who betrayed him and the persons who nailed him on the cross and the people who didn't believe in the sneering and say, forgive them. They, they don't know what they're doing. Forgive them. Because that's God's favorite subject. And we are God's favorite project. Isn't that remarkable? To teach you and me the fundamental lesson, the secret, the truth, that to love is to live. Amen.